Uh, If you know us at all, you'll know that we are uh, pretty big baseball fans in the Donahue house, and so we uh, will follow uh, the local baseball team both in-season and out-of-season. Unfortunately, lately, there hasn't been much to watch in the in-season, so that makes us pay more attention to the out-of-season and some of the moves and trades that happen in the out-of-season. But one of the things you'll notice in baseball is sometimes they'll make these trades, and uh, they'll talk about the substance of the trade, and then they'll say, uh, they'll include in the trade a player to be named later, or uh, some sort of nameless baseball player, and often you never even learn who that player is, they just remain nameless and somehow get wrapped up in that trade. Well, in Matthew's genealogy, what we've been looking at this Advent season, we see the names of Jesus's mothers, and we've looked at that throughout the Advent season. We've looked at Tamar, we've looked at Ruth, we looked at Rahab, Uh, we're going to look at Mary on Christmas Eve, but there's another nameless mother uh, who is mentioned in verse 6 of Matthew's genealogy. Uh, She's nameless in the genealogy, but we know from the rest of the scriptures uh, that her name is actually Bathsheba, even though Matthew uh, only calls her the wife of Uriah. So what I want to do this morning is look at the story of Bathsheba and see what it tells us about uh, this Savior who is to come that we celebrate uh, during the Christmas season. So we're going to look again at Matthew's genealogy, and then we're going to switch back to 2 Samuel chapter 2 and just look at a few uh, verses from her story. So first, uh, Matthew's genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Ruth, or by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now skipping down to verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now skipping to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, and I'm just going to read a a couple of verses here, starting in verse 7. Uh, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now skipping down uh, to verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. 
This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your scripture. Thanks for the story it contains. Thanks that it all points to that baby Jesus who was born uh, to Mary and Joseph, that this entire big story finds its climax uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate uh, this season and every Sunday as we gather for worship. We pray, Father, as we, as we look at this uh, sordid story in the book of 2 Samuel, you would help us uh, to see what it means about the gospel, what it means about your work in time and in space and in history. So we need your spirit to come to enlighten our hearts, to open our eyes, to see the truth. So we invite your spirit to come. We commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned before, we've been looking at these uh, different mothers uh, in the, the story of Jesus, in the family of Jesus. We started with a look at Tamar, uh, who is mentioned in that genealogy. And in, what we saw from her story is that God is in the business of showing up in really messy situations and often in really messy lives. And Tamar's story was very messy and it was a scandalous situation. And we saw that that's really good news uh, for people who are messy like you and I, uh, for people who need God to come and enter into our messiness. And what we saw is that, that he enters in. That's what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. Uh, the Rahab story reminded us that salvation is open to all, uh, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomics, uh, regardless of background or class. Uh, the salvation of God is open to all. And maybe the most important thing about the Rahab story, uh, salvation is open to all of us regardless of our past, regardless of the things that we have done. Uh, the Ruth story that we looked at last week is all about reversals, about God entering in and changing a life, uh, reversing situations from bad to good, from situations of want to situations of plenty, and the concept in which it all hinges upon is this idea of redemption. And so now this morning we come to the story of Rahab and we, we observe, uh, well, what we'll see is another really messy situation, another scandalous, another sordid uh, sort of situation. Uh, but what we are left with, the question we're left is, with is, is, can God redeem this? Can God make something beautiful out of this terribly messy situation? And it all starts with King David in 2 Samuel. You can read, it's a couple of chapters, this whole story, and we're going to try to summarize it. But really the main character is King David. He is the, the king of God's people at this time, the Israelite nation. And when 2 Samuel opens up, David has uh, become king over the whole land. Uh, the stories of Goliath, uh, the stories from his youth and his time as a great warrior uh, are all behind him. And now he is reigning over the kingdom in a time of peace and prosperity. And so now to some degree, David feels like he can relax he can settle into uh, his kingship. He can enjoy his rule. But the problem that we see in our passage this morning is that David settles a little bit too much into what it means to be a king. He relaxes a little bit too much. Because what we learn at the beginning of 2 Samuel, or at least in this story, is that uh, David, his army is out at war. Uh, they're out battling, uh, and David decides for some reason not to lead his troops into battle. He stays home, 
And so while his army is fighting, while they're engaged within the fight, David isn't. He is home. He chooses to stay home in the palace while his armies are at war. And what we'll see is that probably is really the first step in this problem situation. Because what we, dis- we start to see in David is something that you see all throughout the scriptures, but all throughout human history. And that is power has the temptation to corrupt that power has the temptation to corrupt. And we see that in the story of David. The passage opens and he's idling on his roof. He's on the roof of his palace. He's idling, walking back and forth. And all of a sudden, he observes in the distance a beautiful woman who is bathing. And he immediately has to know about this woman. So he inquires about the woman only to discover that she is married. Uh, She's actually married to Uriah the Hittite who was one of David's most trusted warriors. He was one of those faithful warriors uh, that stood by David, even in David's most difficult chapters of his life. Uriah the Hittite, of course, is off at the war where he should be battling uh, amongst David's army. But learning the fact that Bathsheba is married unfortunately doesn't stop David. He sends for her and he sleeps with her, the passage tells us. And when he's done fulfilling his lust and acting on his lust, uh, he sends her back home. He sends her away. Now here in Baltimore, uh, we've, we've dealt with some corruption when it comes to our leaders. If you just pay attention to the mayoral race and uh, things that have gone on in Baltimore, uh, the past couple years we've dealt with our own corruption from our leaders. And in each case, uh, power was given to a specific leader, and in those cases, that power was abused for their own personal gain. And of course, we see that this isn't a new story in, the, in, in our city. It isn't a new story throughout history. That's exactly what we see David doing here in this passage. He uses his power to get what he wants, and he satisfies his lust. And when he is done doing the deed, he uses his power to send Bathsheba away. And at the end, he thinks, it's, uh, he thinks he's gotten away with it. He thinks, not a big deal. Uh, it's in the past. Uh, I've, I've gotten away with this. Nobody really notices. And then he gets a word from Bathsheba with only three, uh, sub- three words are the substance of her message. And that is, I am pregnant. She is pregnant with David's baby. Of course, David has to face a decision moment at this point. Will he own up to what he has done, or will he try to cover up his indiscretion? And of course, what we learn immediately is we don't get the sense that David thought much about this decision moment. He chooses the latter option. He chooses to cover over what he has done, and he makes three attempts to cover over his sin. The first attempt is that he sends for Uriah, who comes back from the battleground. And Uriah comes into the presence of David, and David says, relax, go home, go and be with your wife. David is thinking at this point, well, if Uriah can just go in and relax and be with his wife, then we can pawn the pregnancy off on that situation. But Uriah returns back from the battlefield, and he wants none of it. 
He feels guilty being with his wife and relaxing with his wife while the rest of his brothers are out at arms and engaged in the war. He feels like it's unfair for him to be idle and relax while his brothers are engaged in the battle. A great foil for David because that's exactly what David should have been doing himself. And so David's first attempt to cover over this indiscretion fails. Uriah does not comply. And so David engages in a second attempt, which is really just like the first attempt with just alcohol involved. David decides, let's maybe get Uriah drunk, and then if he's drunk, some of his loyalty and some of that uh, integrity might disappear, and he might go home and be to his wife. But of course, that attempt fails as well. So David comes to his third attempt, which is even more egregious. And one of the things that it shows us is that sin, when it is unconfessed and entertained, tends to compound upon itself. It tends to grow more and more. It tends to snowball in one's life. And of course, we see this in David because he decides that his only option from here on out is to dispose of Uriah completely. So David writes a letter to Joab, his commander, instructing him to put Uriah on the front lines of the battle where he is most likely to be killed. Uriah has to carry this letter to his commander Joab containing his death sentence within it. And of course, Joab receives the letter. He puts Uriah on the front lines and sure enough, the next time the battle rages, Uriah is killed. There's collateral damage as well in that other officers are killed in this process as well. So Joab, knowing that he has complied with the king's command, sends a letter back to David informing him that, the, that Uriah has been killed and David's wishes have been fulfilled. And so once David receives word about Uriah's death, he sends for Bathsheba, he takes, him as, he takes her as his own wife because after all, third time is the charm and finally the indiscretion has been covered up. So don't miss the, compre- the, the, the sort of uh, compounding, compressing nature to sin here. Lust gave birth to adultery. Adultery leads to murder in this situation. All of it was covered up, lie after lie after lie. And to make matters worse, at the end of the story, it appears that David has gotten away with it that he's gotten away with this indiscretion. No one truly knows what has really happened. No one in the story has really found David out. No one knows about his indiscretion, except, of course, for one, God knows. God saw, God knows, God's heart was grieved by David's sin, and so God now is ready to confront David through the prophet Nathan. And so this Bathsheba story actually says very little about Bathsheba. Maybe that's why David didn't, or Matthew didn't mention her by name in the genealogy. She actually is sort of a flat character in this story. She only has three words throughout the whole story. Now granted, they are important words, I am pregnant, uh, but she only has three words here. But the real power, I think, in this story comes as we look at David's role in this 
and what it tells us about God and about being included in God's kingdom, or even better yet, about being included in God's family. And I think the first thing that we see most clearly in David's story here, his indiscretion with Bathsheba, is this. That this story reminds us that the family of God welcomes sinners. The family of God welcomes sinners. When you look at the entirety of scriptures, I think you have to vote that this is one of the most heinous sins that we read about throughout the whole scriptures. Lust is here, adultery is here, the abuse of power is here, theft, deception, murder, the list goes on and on and on. This is one of the most egregious and heinous sins that is recorded throughout the entire scripture. And think about it culturally. Think about just where we are culturally today. Think about how we have uh, in many ways demonized and condemned those who commit sins like this in our culture. Uh, Just think about the notable names over the past couple years who have been guilty of things very similar to this. Guys like uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein, uh, Kevin Spacey, the actor, uh, Matt Lauer, the talk show host. All of these men abused power Uh, often in very sexual ways to get what they wanted and their abuses came to light and our culture condemned them for it. And many of them, of course, uh, have faced a lot of consequences in our culture uh, for these crimes that they have committed. But when you think about it, David should be numbered on this list. He should be numbered amongst these men who have committed these heinous crimes and have been condemned as a result of it. And if you keep reading in David's story, what you discover is that David does face very serious consequences for this sin, consequences that he deals with for the rest of his life, horrible, painful things that he deals with as a consequence of his sin with Bathsheba. But as heinous as David's sins were, as serious as the consequences of these sins are and were for David's life, it still doesn't disqualify him from becoming a member of God's family. Now, why is that? Why is that? It's the why is because God's family welcomes sinners. It welcomes sinners. No matter how egregious and horrible those sins are, the family of God welcomes sinners. And that is good news for you and I as well. We might not be guilty of David's level of sin, but we all have sinned. We all have done things we're not proud of. We all have quiet moments where we look into our past and wish we could change this or that thing that we've done. We all live in the carnage of sins that we've committed at points in our lives, and it reminds us that none of us at all are worthy to be included in this family, and yet it still remains open to us because the family of God welcomes sinners like David, sinners like you and I. The second thing this story reminds us is that that life in the family of God, so it welcomes us into the family of God, but life in the family of God is a life of repentance. It's a life of repentance. What's so interesting about the David story is this, and it's so hard for, for many to understand, and I understand why, 
Because despite this horrible sin, despite this egregious sin, David is still considered to be the greatest king in Israel's history. He's considered to be the quintessential king. All the other kings have to live in the shadow of David. Almost every other time David is mentioned throughout the scriptures, he is lifted up as an example. He is emulated. He's celebrated as a hero. And it sort of begs this question. If David is so guilty of such a heinous sin, then how could he be considered to be so great? Why do we think of him in such heroic terms? Why is he lifted up as an example? And here's the answer. What makes David great is not his resume, but his repentance. What makes David great is not his resume, but it is his repentance. Because when David is finally confronted by his sin, where there was no way for him to hide, there was no way for him to cover it up, when he is finally confronted by his sin through the prophet Nathan, he simply says this in 2 Samuel, I have sinned against the Lord. Now we sort of read that and we think, okay, 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 we're part of the way. He isn't blame shifting. That's that's a good thing. He's owning it. That's a good thing. Uh, He doesn't seem to be playing the victim or asserting his rights as a king, and that's, that's all good, and all those things are good. But can't we get a little more out of you than just one sentence of repentance here, David? Well, the truth is that we do. Because if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32, And Psalm 51, what you find are two psalms that most believe were written by David right after he was caught in this sin with Bathsheba. Listen to Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And these psalms go on and on and on and on. And the sense that you get is that the pages on which these psalms were written were just soaked in the tears of David's repentance. He recognized his sin. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He owned it. He was broken, but he was broken not just because of the consequences of his sin, not just because he was caught, but he was broken because of what it revealed about the nature of his heart. He recognized what he is capable of, what his heart is capable of doing in sin. He recognized how his sin grieved others, but maybe most importantly, he recognized how his sin grieved the heart of God. And so what it reminds us is that in the kingdom of God, in God's family, what makes someone great is not their resume, It's not their spiritual accomplishments. What makes someone great is their repentance before a holy God. In fact, the life of a believer in Jesus Christ is a life of repentance and faith. 
It is daily recognizing and grieving over our sin and over the nature of sin that exists in our heart, but not being perpetually dour and sad and grieving about it, but then to take that next step and to cling by faith to the forgiveness that we receive in Jesus Christ. So this story is important for us to remind us that, it, that, that the family of God welcomes sinners. It's important to help us recognize that life within the family of God is about repentance and faith. But finally, what this story does is it does one more thing for us. Very simply, I think it makes us yearn. It makes us desire. It makes us want a more perfect king, a more perfect king. David, what we see here, even though he is emulated as this great king, is a wildly imperfect king. And for all of human history, we've been constantly reminded that kings, rulers, and authorities, guess what? They disappoint us. They frustrate us. They leave us yearning. They leave us wanting. We have uh, authorities the time in and time again who work for their own political gain rather than for the welfare of others. We have authorities like David who abuse their power to get what they want. And it is remarkably easy, if you're like me, it is remarkably easy to get really cynical about it, to think that this is just always the way it is going to be. But what the Christmas story tells us is that there is hope for cynical hearts like mine, that there is hope in that cynicism, that Bathsheba and David have another child, and that child's name is Solomon. But what we learn from Matthew's genealogy is that one of the descendants born to this sort of sordid story will be born to another young couple named Mary and Joseph. And what we learn about their child is that he is the king of kings. He is the perfect king that our hearts most long for. His life his rule makes the forgiveness of our sins possible. He makes it possible for our sins to be put away just as David's sins were at the end of our narrative. Eugene Peterson said this, and we'll close with this quote, David's sin, enormous as it was, was wildly outdone by God's grace. And the good news of the Christmas story is this. So can your sin and so can my sin. That no matter how great and heinous and egregious our sins are, they can be wildly outdone by the grace that comes from the King of Kings, from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.